you have a Bible, open it with me to Acts 25. It is great to see you here this morning. If you don't know me, my name's Mark, and it is my privilege to serve as the pastor of this great church. Hope you get a chance to meet someone new this summer as we have our after parties. Uh, Please take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, Today we're going to talk about why me? Anybody ever said that before? Why me? Well, we're going to talk about that after I pray. Let me pray. Hey, Lord, thanks so much for a chance to open your word and for us to uh, learn from Paul and his story here in the back part of Acts. Uh, Thanks for faithful men and women uh, throughout the early uh, church and throughout its history who, uh, even as they went through their why me moments, they stood firm and stayed fast in their uh, commitment to you. And I pray that that's what happens with us. If we don't know you yet, I pray that we find you just like these kids did. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, but if we do know you, I pray, God, that we would meet you in our why me moments and watch you work. Get me out of the way in this moment so that you can speak through me, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody gets to the parts of life where it's why me, right? Usually the second question that comes after why me is, what did I do to deserve this? Anybody ever ask that one? Anybody ever say that in, uh, in the presence of your children? What did I do to deserve this? Uh, Kids are great, I love mine, but uh, there are days when we have questions. Theologically, if we really wanted to kick this off and go in a different direction, we could actually posit this, that uh, probably the better question is, is why not me? Why not more often me? Because here's the deal, we believe we live in a broken world and we're broken people and we do broken things. And we all just, as kind of a foundation for this discussion, all agree that God gives us way more grace than we ever could deserve, right? I mean, that's what grace is, it's getting things that we don't deserve. And so um, if we really wanted to evaluate this from another angle, maybe there should be more hard days or tougher days. Uh, why, what did I do to deserve this? We, we sinned, <laughs> a lot. And uh, sin uh, brings consequence. But, Hey, sometimes there's stuff that happens, and it didn't seem like we did anything to bring about these circumstances, and uh, those are the times when we wonder why me. It can be simple stuff, like uh, uh, you're, you're uh, unloading your cart at Publix, and you got $100 worth of groceries for the week there, and uh, there's a whole line of people behind you, and they're waiting to get through uh, the grocery store as well, and, and you reach for your wallet, and it's not there because you put it in the little cubby thing in your truck, because that's where you like to keep it when you're not, you know... Uh, and, and, and so it's 300 yards away in the 95 degree heat and you feel that tension of everybody looking at you like you're the moron who doesn't bring his wall out. Wow, that's really great. And so you gotta run out to get to your truck. This may or may not have happened this week. Anyway, uh, you gotta run out and get your wallet to your truck and, and the whole time you're running, you're saying this, this why, why me? And I, that one, we can kinda understand, forgetful. That's why me. And then there's uh, other things. Now, you put your car in for what you hope, this did happen this week, you put your car in for what you hope is just going to be a, a, a cheaper repair, like uh, your, your air's blowing hot, you're hoping you just need some Freon, right? And the first place you take your truck to, that's what they tell you, oh yeah, you're just a pound light on your Freon, no big deal. And so they charge your uh, Freon up and, and you're out there and you're driving, but two days later, same thing happens. Just, I'm not a mechanic, but if a pound of Freon goes away in two days, there's a bigger issue going on, right? So I go to another mechanic friend of mine, and he gives me the great news. Your evaporator is shot. Whoever fixed your uh, truck last time failed to put in cabin filters. And when the cabin filters are not in a vehicle, apparently all the acorns and leaves that are in the trees that are above where you park your car, they go down into your truck and into your evaporator, and they evaporate your evaporator. 
So uh, five days without a vehicle and uh, a price tag with a couple other zeros on it, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, In a season where you're like, hey, I don't need this right now. And you pay the bill and you get in your truck and you're asking yourself, say it with me, why me? Again, not life-threatening, but there are those uh, life-changing, life-altering why me moments where you wake up one morning and a person that you expected to do the day with has left this world. When you spent all of your life, well, most of your adult life, uh, building a home with someone, and then one day they let you know they're not gonna be here anymore. When you go to that job that you've tried your best at for all those years, and they let you know that we're downsizing, and by we, I mean you. Yeah, there's, there's days when the why me's are, are bigger, or the questions are louder. Uh, be encouraged, the Bible's full of people who had why me moments. Uh, you can just walk through and, and read the book. It's a great book if you haven't read it yet. Uh, but you can just see their stories played out. You get to the Psalms, and we get to see this guy, David. He's the king, well, anointed king of Israel, not quite king yet. But he writes all these songs leading up to his, well, and even after his coronation. Uh, And a lot of them begin with, why me? Lord, where are you? What's the deal with this? That's where Seinfeld got it. What's the deal? It's a... it's, it's, it's not what I thought would happen when I got anointed to be king. I, I, I thought, you know, I'd, I'd be in the palace by now, not, you know, hiding out in a cave. Everybody's against me. Nobody likes me. I'm going to eat some worms. But the Psalms almost always shift, and he gets back to praise and hope and peace. But it starts with, why me? Even your Savior, my Savior, Jesus, he had a why me moment. Anybody remember it? Hanging from a cross, he said these words. In the book of Mark, it says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Uh, The writers are gracious to translate all that. We could have figured it out probably, but it basically means this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The second to last thing that Jesus says before he commends his spirit into his father's hands is, is a question. It's a loud question. It says in the Bible that he said this, exclaimed this loudly. Father, Father, why me? He had uh, earlier in his crucifixion story prayed in a garden. And what did he say to his father then? Hey, if, if we could have this cup pass over me, that'd be great. But not my will, yours be done. Uh, this is one of the more debated parts of Jesus' words. Why would he say this? Especially if he's sovereign and all-knowing and God's son. And, uh, he, he had been born for this moment. He told his disciples over and over again, hey, I gotta go back to Jerusalem and they're gonna kill me and I'm gonna raise up again in three days, but th- that's what this is all about. And his disciples were like, no, that's not happening. But he knew that's, that's his purpose. He came for this. So we can't think that like Jesus is surprised. We can't think that he hasn't, you know, thought of or foreseen that uh, his father is going to turn his back on him. Huge theological debate. Was the Trinity divided at the crucifixion? 
Well, whatever the case is, I don't know, just so you know, I'm not sure. But whatever the case is, certainly God's wrath was poured out on the Son. The Father laid all of his anger and justice out on the the shoulders of our Savior Jesus Christ because he took your sins and my sins upon himself and he took the punishment for them. And what that brought was a forsaking. Jesus asked this question. Lots of scholars have batted it around. Maybe he was surprised by how difficult this was. Again, I go back to him being all-knowing. I think, I agree with this one scholar who says this, that when Jesus exclaimed this question loudly, he was doing it more in a rhetorical sense. Like, like when he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? He's, he's saying it loud enough so that everybody at the cross can hear him. And he wants everybody to think about why is this happening? Maybe not there in the moment, but as they reflect on it and as they understand the gospel, why is this happening? And the answer to that question is because, well, if it doesn't happen, then nobody's sitting here this morning. If it doesn't happen, there's no freedom from sin. If it doesn't happen, salvation is impossible. Jesus is trying to teach everybody, this has to happen. Why has God forsaken me? Because it's the only way that people can be reconnected with him. It's not unlike my wife telling my kids, uh, or asking my kids this question, why do I go to work? Eleanor works, loves her job, and does it for other reasons than this, but the principal reason that my wife went back to work after so many years is because our kids were headed to college. And uh, we hadn't been <laughs> fortuitous or foresighted enough to start you know, uh, saving earlier. Some of you are doing that, way to go. We didn't get that done. And so Eleanor went back to work, and almost every one of her checks entirely has gone to the education of our children. So when our kids start bellyaching about not having this or not having that, or their friends get to do this, or their friends get to do that, my wife comes to them and says, why do I go to work? For you! Not as loud as that, that's how I would say it. (laughs) And Jesus asks, why has God forsaken me? And he's saying to you and to me and everybody there at the cross, it's for you, it's for you. But here, here, as we go through this understanding of why me moments, I, I, I think they're, they're very important in your and my discipleship. They're very important in God's overall plan in accomplishing his glory and our good. Because God issues, appoints, allows, whatever you want to call it, all of those circumstances in your life that make you say, why me? So they can do just that, bring about his greater glory in yours and others' greater good. In fact, I think uh, our why me moments are probably special, extraordinary, because in those moments that the volume gets turned up, that not only you are paying attention more, but the people around you are watching you and seeing what you do in these difficult circumstances. I was at Sam's the other morning, uh, just you know, grabbing a few things. Uh, well, by the way, pray for all the missions teams. I forgot to mention this. Uh, many of them are heading out uh, this morning and will be gone for the next couple of weeks. Our student mission teams, a lot of those. Uh, I'm heading out Thursday for Uganda. I'm going to go train some more pastors for a couple of weeks. It'll be a great time. Uh, so, going to take some guys with us and do that. But pray for our missions teams. I was just grabbing some stuff for that trip, all that to say. And I'm at Sam's, and, and there's tables. Anybody been to Sam's and Brandon? There's, there's some, like, you know, picnic tables where people can eat the food that they get at the cafeteria area. And uh, there's this, you know, young family out with their two kids uh, having, you know, a little pre-lunch or something like that, and one of the kids is done. Anybody have that kid? 
Like they're done with this morning's activities. There is no speaking, you know, uh, of, of any kind of, you know, reason with them or anything. They're just freaking out. Six years, four, five, six years old. They're tired. They're, and they're just losing it right there at the picnic table. And all of Sam's is watching what these parents do. Why? Because the volume's up. The kid's losing it. And this is a test for those parents, and they did well. They uh, put the kid in the cart and uh, tried their best to shush him and walked her out the door. I don't know what happened after that, but so far, so good, right? (laughs) But that's what happens. When when trouble comes in our lives, does anybody do this with your phone? What's this mean? While you're scrolling, I'm doing the two fingers, though. What is it? You're making it bigger. Has anybody ever gotten a picture and you're like, who is that? Oh, it's my wife. Anyway, right? <laughs> That's what these circumstances are. Whenever you're in a pickle, whenever you're in a why me moment, just take your two fingers like this. It'll be a great reminder. That's what God's doing. He's making himself bigger. He's got the bullhorn out. And your actions are going to speak, not just to your life, but to those around you. Today we're going to study this guy, Paul, who is a master of making the most of his why me moments. He's just doing this all the time. Because he's always in why me moments, just so you know. He's one of the most persecuted guys we'll read about in your Bible. He's in jail. He's been in jail for two years. No trial. No actual charges at stick. He's in there unjustly as a Roman citizen. But time after time, he takes advantage of his circumstances to make much of his Savior. He's going to end up going to Rome, spoiler alert. And in Rome, he's going to do some of his best writings, his best work. The Holy Spirit's going to inspire him to say things that you and I have studied in our Christendom for all time. I mean, it's just Paul is using, leveraging his why me moments. He even gives us a story about it in the book of Philippians. He's writing from Rome where he's a prisoner, and he's just trying to encourage these Philippian Christians that they should go on in life just like he is. He says in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, me being in prison, me having all these hardships, has really served to advance the gospel. He says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial garden to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He he gets strapped daily to a different guard. That's how it worked when you get to the prisons in Rome. Uh, You're just kind of shackled to a a guard, a, a jailer. And uh, so every day, <laughs> he would be shackled to someone, and uh, he would be, hey, how's it going? Bill, it's you again. It's your time. You know, we got the next eight hours. What do you want to talk about? Jesus? Awesome. I'd love to talk about Jesus. And you can't go anywhere. <laughs> he goes on and he says this. It's not only that. Not only am I getting to share with the entire imperial guard, but listen, because I'm sharing Christ in prison, Most of the brothers and sisters here in Rome, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. God's using this circumstance to blow up my testimony. He's making it huge in the the ranks of the imperial guard, but he's using me to inspire a whole church of Christians here in Rome to be even more bold. I sense that God wants to do this in our lives as we go through our why me moments. That he wants us to not quit, 
Many of us do. Anybody been there? Why me moments? Just go back to bed? Just kind of reel it in? Pity party? Woe is me. Everything goes inward. That, that invisible mirror that many of us walk around looking at all day is right here. And all we can think of is ourself and our problems and our, ugh. Understandable, understandable. Not very profitable. And certainly not what I think the word teaches us we should be doing in our why me moments. Let's learn from Paul today what we as Christ followers should do in our why me situations. Let me read you the story of Acts chapter 25. Um, and we're going to see, first of all, that in our why me moments, we have to remember that God is always working around us. We, we can trust God to work behind the scenes in the hard things in our lives. Watch how he works behind the scenes here in Paul's story. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Got to back up a little bit. Who was here last week? All four of you. That's great. Okay. Um, Last week we talked about this leader in Caesarea, a guy named Felix. He was the governor. He was a former slave. He was brutal. He was just the, one of the meanest Roman officials that had ever come down the pipe. And uh, he was on, on call or you know, in power when, when all the things that went down with Paul went down in Jerusalem. And so uh, Paul had appealed to, to, to Rome to have his, his trial, this, this bogus set of charges against him, tried in a Roman court, and so they had taken him to Caesarea. Felix had been the initial tribunal leader uh, to hear his case, and he just kind of put Paul off and said, we'll just keep him in prison. We're not going to do anything as far as, you know, uh, weighing in on his verdict, but he's just going to sit in prison for two years. He and his wife Drusilla had some conversations with Paul. We talked about that last week, that even as Paul's sitting unjustly in prison, he has opportunities to influence the most powerful people in the government of Palestine. It's amazing, right? But here's the deal. Felix just kind of goes away. Josephus, the historian, tells us he goes back to Rome probably to give an account for all of his atrocities while he was leading in Caesarea. He's replaced by this guy, Festus. And Festus comes in, and he's more of a politician because he arrives in Caesarea. Uh, he's in Palestine to rule over a predominantly Jewish uh, country, and, and so he decides, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go talk to the Jewish leaders. They're in Jerusalem, so he heads down there after three days of being in office. He gets there, and this is what happened. The chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. Hi, how are you doing, Festus? Great to meet you. Glad you're in power. Uh, my name is Ananias. The rest of the fellows here on the Sanhedrin, we're so glad to have you. Have some sandwiches. And uh, hey, listen, can we talk about Paul? You got this guy in your prison up there in Caesarea who for two years has deserved to die, and Festus has kept holding us off. If you remember, and I'm sorry, Felix had kept holding us off. Felix was hoping for a bribe from Paul. That's why he was principally keeping him. He was hoping that Paul would pay him a little money so he could get him out of prison. But the Jews were still angry. They urged him, it says, verse three, uh, and they asked him for a favor against Paul, uh, or, or, or yeah, to, that he would summon him that Festus would take Paul back to Jerusalem. And here's why. They did this because they, they were planning on ambushing him and killing him on the way. If you were here last week, you know that 40 guys took a, a vow not to eat until Paul was dead, and they had planned this ambush. That's a couple weeks ago, actually. And, uh, and Paul's nephew heard the story, ratted them out, all right, to the, uh, to the leader uh, of, of the Roman guard there. And so Paul walks out of Jerusalem with 470 Roman soldiers guarding him. No ambush. No ambush. 
Two years later, those guys are hungry. Because <laughs> they still haven't had a chance to uh, complete their vow. And so uh, one more shot these Jewish leaders are taking to get Paul out in the open. This is really interesting. Look at Festus' reply. He replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. Anybody here lead in any capacity? Someone uh, leading in a, a job or a, yeah, if you're in leadership, one of the most important things you can do early in leadership is establish your leadership. Like, who, who, is, who is rejoicing when the substitute teacher gave, came to your high school class? Who loved that? Because you're like, oh, we're just going to work this person. Oh, yeah, she lets us do that all the time. Yeah, we can leave. That's totally fine. I mean, who's, well, don't raise your hands. Anyway, uh, but we had this one substitute teacher at Caribou High School in, in Caribou, Maine, who was just, just not having it. He was an older dude. I think he was a former Marine. He came in, and he established dominance immediately. Just so you know, there will be no bathroom passes in this classroom. You will read these. I mean, and he, he's, he's terrifying. 16-year-olds are weeping. <laughs> That's what Festus is doing here. He's saying, no, no, no. The tail will not wag the dog. Paul's going to stay where he's at. In fact, I intend to go back there shortly. And he says this, so uh, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Here's how it's going to work, fellas. I'm Rome. You're not. You want to settle this stuff with Paul? It's a home game for me. Come to where I am. Now, Festus is probably just trying to, you know, let them know what's up. I'm the boss. But here's what we understand is, as these stories, seemingly innocuous stories, hit the scriptures, God is behind the scenes. And Festus, as we're going to find out, is uh, a politician. When things aren't going well, he'll start capitulating to his constituency. That'll happen in a few verses here. But here in this situation, in this instance, he didn't bend. And God is moving things in the favor of Paul, keeping him safe, where otherwise he'd be out in the open, susceptible to ambush. You know, we see this throughout the scriptures, that God is working in the stories of other people. I wonder if Paul sat in his prison, I don't have any biblical proof of this, but I wonder if Paul sat in his prison cell and thought through what he had meditated on as a Pharisee uh, coming up through the ranks uh, in the Old Testament scriptures. He knew the, the law, he knew the prophets, he knew the stories of the history of Israel, and so he, he remembers the patriarchs like Joseph, uh, a prisoner, by the way. Joseph was one of 12 brothers. He is, uh, you know, just minding his own business, has a dream one night, tells his brothers about it. Basically, it's a dream where his brothers are going to bow down to him someday. His brothers, you know, gave him a noogie because that's what brothers do. It's like, you know, no, his brothers just kill him. They, they saw him walking out to where they were watching their father's sheet, and they're like, that's it. We're killing that brother. And so uh, Reuben, one of the brothers, said, you know, hey, let's just throw him in this hole. And, uh, you know, uh, he had plans to come back and let him out and, but basically, while he's gone, I'm going to try to make this longer story shorter. It's like 15 chapters in Genesis. You're going to give me that? Let me just make it shorter. Uh, his other brothers sell Paul, uh, Joseph into slavery. Joseph becomes a slave. Uh, that doesn't go well. 
because he's got this woman in this house that he's you know, kind of a, a chief slave in who wants to be with him and he doesn't want to be with her because it's dishonoring to God and so uh, she trumps up all these fake uh, sexual harassment charges and so the, the master of the house throws Joseph in jail, right? And now he's sitting unjustly in jail. Does this sound familiar to what we're talking about? And, and, and he's having these why me moments over and over and over again in his story. I mean, he just had a dream for Pete's sake. But he never lets any of those things hold him back. And he continues to persist in the things that God had made him to be and, and, and the things that God was preparing for him to be. One of his uh, cellmates has a dream. He interprets the dream, and, and the end game, uh, end result of that is that this cellmate actually is is taken from prison and given a place in the palace. He's the cupbearer of the king. He's, he's in charge of a, a part of the king's day. Joe asks this guy, hey, man, just remember me. Say, you know, here's my card. Give it to the king. But the guy doesn't. Until the king has a dream. And then this former prisoner remembers, oh, there's this guy in prison. He, he's pretty good with dreams. And they summon Joe to the palace. And just to finally sum up this deal, Joe had breakfast in the mess hall at the prison. In the afternoon, he comes and interprets the dream of the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh says, you know what, who better than to navigate the coming things that this dream foretells than you, and Joseph has dinner in the palace as the second most powerful man in Egypt that night. Because that's how it works with prisoners all the time. You wake up, have breakfast, in the mess hall, and then you sleep in the White House. I wonder if Paul reflected on those things, and especially the things that as the story moves forward through a series of events where Joseph prepares all of Egypt and then the region for a famine that comes, and then his brothers who are over in Israel come and ask uh, unknowingly of this Pharaoh assistant, this, this second in command in the, in the uh, nation of Egypt, uh, who's their brother that they thought was long dead. Uh, they ask him for grain for, and if, read it, it's all in the back of Genesis, it's all great. Uh, but uh, Joseph, after you know, a time, reveals his identity to these brothers, and they're a little nervous. Because if you remember, they were the ones that had sold him into slavery. Uh, if anybody was going to bear a, a grudge in life, it could be Joseph. Uh, but here's the deal. They come to him and they throw themselves at his mercy. And in Genesis chapter 50, they fall on their faces before Joseph. Does anybody get that? Does anybody get what just happened? The dream came true. All of these older brothers of Joseph are now completely bent over begging for their lives, just like the dream depicted. Joseph says in verse 19 of that 50th chapter of Genesis, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph knew where he, he was in, in the pecking order. And he goes on to say this to them, as for you, you guys and all that you did, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for, say it with me, good, to bring it about that many should be kept alive as they are today. See, Joseph understood my why me moments had purpose. God was working behind the scenes. I could trust him. I did trust him, even as things went from bad to worse to worstest. 
I made that word up. I knew he had a greater plan in place, and ultimately, we're living it right now. What you meant for evil, God intended for good. And not just me, not just you, not just our family's going to be sustained through this famine, but hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are going to be spared because of the goodness of God in the midst of my why me moment. I'm sure, or I'm guessing that Paul thought of Joseph maybe, or or of Daniel, or of others in the scriptures who were wrongly imprisoned, and yet God's purposes were realized through them. If you're going through a why me moment, trust that God's working behind the scenes. If you're going through a why me moment, trust that God is, uh, or trust God as you're in that moment in the face of injustice. Look what it says in verse six, here back in the story of Paul, after he stayed among them not more than eight or 10 days, this is Festus, he's hung out in Jerusalem for a week and a half or so, uh, he goes back to Caesarea, and the next day, he takes his seat on the, the bench of the court, and he orders Paul to be brought before him, and, and here come those, those Jews from Jerusalem. Uh, they, they had come down from Jerusalem and stood around Paul, uh, bringing many and serious charges against him uh, that they could not prove. Again, another bogus trial. A bunch of accusations, a bunch of smoke, but no fire. And in verse eight, it tells us that Paul argued his defense and this is all he says. He says, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Full stop, that's it. It's interesting that you know, Luke here, writing the story of Acts, does not report that uh, Paul, like in one of his other trials, uh, you know, said some angry words at those that accused him. Remember he got smacked in the face a couple weeks ago and uh, he, he kind of levied a curse, right? Uh, he's done doing that. He's kind of taken more uh, seriously, apparently, the, uh, the teachings of his Savior, Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, hey, when someone smacks you on the cheek, what do you do? Give them the other side. Someone asks you to walk a mile, you walk too. Someone's asking you for your coat, give them your whole wardrobe. Paul will write later in the book of Romans, hey, don't take vengeance. Because the scripture says that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. When you're in your why me moments, here's my encouragement to you. Don't take your eyes off of your Savior and put them on yourself. Don't see it as your opportunity to uh, eloquently defend your position. Just state the facts and sit back and wait, trusting that God will honor you in your gentleness and humility. Again, I don't know what Paul was meditating on it in his cell, but maybe uh, he thought about Psalm 109 where it says this, uh, again, David writing, and he says, be not silent, O God of my praise. He says in verse two, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. Sound familiar to Paul's situation? They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. He says, in return for my love, they accuse me. But David in this psalm says, you know, but what I'm going to do, I'm just going to keep my eyes on you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to focus on what you have for me in this situation. It's, it's my why me moment. It's not fair. What did I do to deserve this? But through it all, I'll trust you. Trust God in your why me moments. Be careful in those situations not to over-defend yourself, not to assert your rights unduly 
And now I'm going to talk about the other side of my mouth because here's the last thing we're going to learn from this text. Uh, in your why me moments, be sure to use what you have to steer towards God's will. Here's what happens next. Ready? So Festus is there. He's on the bench. And uh, he's, this is where he flips his, his script. Uh, uh, two weeks ago, he wasn't willing to do what the, the Jews wanted him to do. I don't know what's happened in two weeks to change his mind, but now he's actually asking Paul, the prisoner, hey man, what do you say we head down to Jerusalem and do all this there? He says, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and, and there be tried on these charges before me? Why don't we have a change of venue? Because I, I know that's what these guys would like. They think that you should be tried in a Jewish court because your offenses are a Jewish religious nature. So what do you say? No, this is what Paul says. He says, hey, listen, <laughs> I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, that's you, Festus, where I ought to be tried. I'm a Roman citizen. To the Jews, one more time, I have done nothing wrong. As you yourself very well know, they have nothing to prove their case against me. If then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Remember what Paul says to the Philippians? He says, listen, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is what? He's not afraid to die. And listen, he's also a just guy. He understands the law. And if he has actually committed an offense against the law that deserves death, he's totally fine. He's a righteous dude. If I deserve to die, let it be. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, then no one can give me up to them. And here's where things change a little bit. He's not making a big fuss. He's not kicking and screaming, whining, trying to get his own revenge. But he simply uses what's at his disposal. He's already used it once before when they were going to lynch him in Jerusalem. He says one more time, I appeal to who? Caesar. I'm a Roman citizen. Can we just get this thing to Rome? And then Festus says this to him. He's, I bet you he's relieved. So when he had conferred with his counsel, he comes back and he says, hey, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Off to Caesar you shall go, you shall go, you shall go. Yeah. He's probably like Pontius Pilate, good. Done. I didn't want to have to do this one anyway. Does anybody remember uh, <laughs> the, the night that... Uh, Paul was in the jail in Jerusalem. He had just caused two riots in 24 hours. And he's sitting there and he's probably feeling like, this is how it ends. I'm not making it out of this alive. Remember Jesus comes to him, Acts 23, verse 11. He comes to him and he says this to him. Hey, Paul, not done with you. I need to get you to Rome. I've got some things that you're going to be doing there. You think that's in the back of Paul's mind as he's making this appeal here in this court? No, I don't want to go back to Jerusalem. My destiny, my spiritual, God-given destiny is Rome. And so I'm going to make this appeal one more time. I'm a Roman citizen. Let me be tried by Caesar. What a great play. I know I just got done telling you to trust God in the midst of your YME moments. Absolutely keep doing that. But don't be so trusting that you don't use the practical, the obvious, the things that God has given you to use in your life situations. There's a a cult uh, that is loosely Christian uh, up in uh, housed or centered in Boston, Massachusetts. I grew up around, it's called Christian Science. And they basically believe that all medicine is evil. So if their kids get sick, if they're serious about their faith, they don't go to doctors, they don't go to hospitals, they just pray. And they trust God to heal their children uh, 
rather than being you know, uh, vaccinated or rather than being you know, uh, given medicine. I think that's nuts, because here's what I believe about science. Some of you are like, science and God don't work. I, I believe God is the God of science. And when God creates things through our scientists, it's his will for us to be able to benefit from those things. Maybe not all of them. Certainly we can have some discussions. But, but certainly there are things at our disposal that have been discovered in God's creation that will benefit God's created. And so it, it's nonsensical to me. It's unwise to me for us to not avail ourselves of the things that God has given us in our why me moments. Use your medicine. Paul used his. I'm a Roman citizen. Let's get to Rome. Joseph used his. I just told his story. Joseph could have just been a peon slave, right? He could have just been this lowest of the low, but Joseph was a leader. That's why his brothers hated him. And so Joseph took his God-given skills and talents and leadership and became the top slave in in the home that he was a slave in. When he went to prison, he became like the second in command to the warden. In all the time that he's doing this, what's God doing for him? He's preparing him for what? to be the prime minister of Egypt. He didn't just kind of sit there in his why me moment and be like, oh, come on, God. Get me out of this. Make it happen. And we shouldn't either. I'll submit this to you as, as we close. I believe that most of our lives are shaped by God's will being exercised through normal people doing normal things so that we get to where we need to go. We preach burning bushes and, and, and signs and wonders. We see those in the scripture, and I'm not saying they don't happen at all. But most of your life story is shaped just by people making wise choices and accomplishing God's will through those things. They just use what's at their disposal to steer. Because here's, here's, here's the deal. God wants to use us and our choices to bring about his will. And, and it's much easier for him to steer a moving vehicle than a parked one. And so he just wants us to go. I'm married to Eleanor, 27 years now. You know how we met? My older sister, Kirsten, who turned 50 this weekend. Hi, everybody who's watching in Cleveland. It's good to see you. My mom and my other sister and Candace, how you doing? Uh, that was for them. Anyway, um, we, we were in college together, and, and my, my wife was working in a candy store or a snack bar on the campus with my sister's roommate. And so she got to know Eleanor. And, and essentially, here's, here's what happened. She thought Eleanor would be a good match for me. And so uh, she just started using what she had at her disposal, her mouth. And she went to Eleanor, and there was going to be this turnabout dance, uh, this, you know, girls ask the guys out thing. She came to Eleanor and says, you know what, my brother really likes you. And, and you, should, you guys would be a great pair. You should ask him out on this dance. And then she came to me, and she said, hey, you know what, that girl that works in the snack bar with Andrea... She really likes you. <laughs> and she's going to ask you to this dance, and you've got to say yes. And so uh, Eleanor was kind of going one way. She kind of wanted to ask this other guy, Sean. And everybody thought she was going to ask Sean to go on this dance. So her being kind of a contrarian, she says, well, I'm not going to ask Sean. I'm going to ask the bonehead basketball guy. <laughs> and so she asked me. And I, being the bonehead basketball guy, was the most arrogant, petulant, 19-year-old kid you've ever met? And I was like, absolutely, I'll go out with you. I'll bless you with this, right? <laughs> so I called her up that night to figure out where we were going on the date, and, and I you know, gave her some more of the same, and, 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 and this is what happened. Five minutes into our first conversation, my wife told me I was an arrogant jerk, essentially, 
And uh, she wasn't sure why she'd asked me out. And I didn't know what to say to that, so I hung up. And I turned around to my roommate and I said, you will not believe what this freshman girl just said to me. She does not who. And then I stopped and I was like, I kind of like that. (laughs) And I picked up the phone and we talked for five hours and 30 years later, here we are, right? But here's the deal. That's your life story too. It's just God using people with ordinary things to make extraordinary things happen. And so, as we close, as you enter your why me moments, just remember that God allowed them, probably even appointed them, knowing that this would be his loudspeaker in your life and in the lives of others. Meet him in those moments. Don't run from them. Don't dig a hole and put your head in it. Ask God to teach you the things that you need to learn. Ask God to use you to teach the things that other people need to learn. Leverage those moments. Make them big. And as you're going through them, trust, know that God is at work behind the scenes. He doesn't take any breaks. He's working stuff you and I don't even know. Trust him and not yourself to defend you in those moments. But as you're trusting him, look around. There might be something that he wants you to employ, that he wants you to do, so that his will, your story, his glory, and your good might come about as a result. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for a chance to open your word and to learn one more time from a great guy, Paul, uh, the things that we need to do in the lives that you've given us. I'm gonna pray a brash and, well, maybe nonsensical prayer to someone here. I'm gonna thank you for our storms. I'm gonna thank you for our trials. Uh, Thank you for allowing us to go through circumstances where we say, why me? Because we know, God, in those circumstances, you can magnify yourself in our hearts and in the hearts of others. We wanna um, just surrender to you in those things seek you in those things, honor you in those things, Uh, lead us to your path, help us to trust you, and enact us, God, in the things that we can do to bring about your glory and our good, I pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said.